0: IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week. We review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we'll be answering questions from you, the IndieCast listener. My name is Stephen Hayden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host Ian Cohen... Ian, how are you?
1: Steve, I'm doing all right. And, you know, one week later, the people just want to know, will Joe Biden make punk rock great again? Uh, (laughs) I I love how that's like been, Uh. I love how that's been the consideration of like the past week or so. Like what's going to happen, you know, ostensibly if Joe Biden takes office, like what's that going to mean for indie rock? Because the way we rationalize in 2016, it's like, well, Donald Trump's going to make punk rock great again. Uh, People are like, I don't know, perhaps hoping that, uh, when Joe Biden takes office, you know, CMJ will come back and stuff will start sounding like Matt and Kim again. And, uh, I don't know. I'm like kind of ready to revisit like late two thousands blog rock. Um, yeah, I think if we take like kind of the total package, maybe we get like recession era Obama comeback. I'm open. Well, I was
0: gonna say, like, it's not gonna be punk rock, it's gonna be like beardy <laughs> indie folk. I mean, I think of that as being the music of the first Obama administration. Yeah. We're gonna I mean we've already had the Fleet Foxes return. That's true. Uh Bonnie is gonna drop a a new joint. We gotta have you know, maybe Mumford is gonna come back. He's gonna make Mumford and Sons great again. Yeah,
1: all the all those bands, all those bands of that nature who went like electronic and started like collaborating oh, yeah. with hip hop, they're just gonna go Screw right back that. to the acoustic guitars. Beards, like we're
0: gonna have like flight of the concord type bands. Absolutely, Um, uh, moving to cabins. Cabins. If you own a cabin, (laughs) sell it now because (laughs) it's gonna be worth a ton of money. Yeah, indie rockers are gonna want to buy your cabin. Yeah, uh, to record their masterpiece. It sounds miserable. (laughs) Oh, we'll see. We'll we'll see. I I I differ. I differ on that, my friend. Well, Uh, I am from the Upper Midwest, so this is great. I mean, this is like the music of my region here. Bearded guys, sensitive dudes in cabins and acoustic guitars, singing unintelligible lyrics. Uh, I can't wait for the next four years. I think it's going to be beautiful. <laughs> um, yeah, I think. Yeah, so uh, make indie folk great again. That's what's what, that's what we're going to have. Hot, I think uh, hot dog for the first Obama administration. Thanks, Obama. Um, <laughs> so we're uh, normally we would have a mailbag segment in this part of the episode, but we're just going to answer mailbag questions like this entire episode. We've done this before and we had a lot of fun. And we like engaging with our indiecast <laughs> listeners. There was also nothing else to talk about this week. <laughs> yeah. So Yeah, let's let, let let's, perfectly.
1: Yeah, let, let let's not beat around the bush here. Like the this is generally like a pretty fallow time for the music industry and you just get a sense like of the past 2 weeks that like people aren't really into Putting out music or talking about it much, for that matter. I think everyone just needs like a couple weeks to just kind of chill and I don't know, maybe you know, rock with their PlayStation Five or a new Xbox. I think I think it's the Xbox's time to shine right now.
0: I think so. I mean, this is the time of year, and I don't know if it's if this is true in California, you know, because it's warm there all the time. But where I live, you know, it, it's getting cold. Mm-hmm. It, it snowed. Uh, this week, there's like, you know, four or five inches outside uh, my office window right now. So this is the type of year like where you just feel like sitting on a couch and eating food. Like, <laughs> it's like that hibernation instinct. Yeah, you know, so so maybe the music industry is like that, too. Like, every band right now is just on a couch, you know, overeating. And you know, watching Netflix instead of putting out music. As, so, as opposed
1: to what's been you know, happening
0: for like the rest of COVID, you know? That's true. <laughs> but at least you could like, at least you could like overread outside, you good know, point. like, yeah. uh, which is what I was doing. Now I have to overread inside. Yeah. So yeah, looking ahead for the, to the next few months, I think we're going to be leaning on our IndieCast <laughs> listeners quite a bit, uh, hooking us up with some good questions. So we have something to talk about on this podcast. And fortunately for us, I mean, I'm really psyched about the questions that we have yeah, uh, these ones are good our, our listeners I'm telling you it's like I really appreciate our listeners right now because like I wrote about Ryan Adams this week so oh. I was I was having <laughs> I was having some negative reader interactions this week on Twitter and, and in my email box I was having a couple uh, angry men who didn't like what mm. I wrote about Ryan Adams um, so It's nice to come back to the womb of IndieCast where it's just all love, all love and support. Our listeners love us, we love them. It's just a big old, like, you know, hug between us and our listeners, I feel like.
1: That being said, so I can relate to your situation, I actually did re listen to Gold recently, and man, I would. I'm embarrassed for my 21 year old self who thought that was like. A, I mean, there are some good songs, but like, I'm embarrassed for my 21 year old self thinking that was like this thing that was going to get us all through a national healing process.
0: Well, you know, I don't want to. Yeah. I don't know how much we want to wait into Ryan Adams in this episode. No, we but don't. I, but I guess I would just say I wrote this in my piece that, you know, because I wrote about. So uh, I, I wrote a mailbag column. Ah. I'm just answering people's questions everywhere, I guess, right now. But uh, someone asked me about, you know, are you going to listen to Ryan Adams again? And I, I wrote a, what I thought was, I tried to be as thoughtful as I could about that. And because my answer was that I haven't really wanted to listen to him all that much, yeah, <laughs> uh, just because the the context of his music has changed. I just think of him exploiting teenage girls when I listen to his music, so it's a little weird. But like, the thing about him too is that he is a pastiche artist essentially yeah. like at heart so like he is someone where like if you don't really want to listen to him he's easily replaceable like by the artist that he ripped off it's like instead yeah. of <laughs> listening to cold roses you can just listen to the grateful dead you know instead of listening to gold you can listen to the rolling stones or graham parsons you know it's it's not he's not so brilliant that like taking him out of your rotation is is painful at least yeah. in my experience yeah But anyway. (laughs) We'll leave it at that. Enough
1: about Ryan Adams. (laughs) Enough about
0: Ryan Adams. Let's get to our first question. This question is from Liz. And I just want to say at the outset that Liz, um, if you're listening, you are my favorite IndieCast listener of all time. You are in the IndieCast Listener Hall of Fame. This is a question that I think people aren't going to really believe came from a listener. They're going to think that I wrote this (laughs) question. The, but I the, the my the my five year old said this to me like political meme <laughs> right, on Twitter, Daddy. Right.
1: Like, why is Ryan Adams the bad guy? <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. No, this is not. This is not that. This is an actual reader, <laughs> uh, actual listener, uh, who who wrote this question, and uh, she says. Hey Steve and Ian. First of all, I absolutely love the podcast. I feel like you all are having the types of conversations I wish I could have with my friends, but they're also tired of hearing me talk about music and or music criticism. Liz, seriously, you're talking about music criticism with your friends like yeah, you, you I start, can't help you there. You got well. You, you got to be friends with us here. That being said, this podcast has also been a source of validation for me. This is mainly directed at Steve. When it comes to two things I love, CDs and U two. As a twenty eight year old, most of my peers find these obsessions odd, as you would imagine. In particular, my friends have been making fun of me for the CD thing constantly since they discovered that I am holding a giant pile of them in my Bluetooth enabled car. But I have passionately defended my stance that CDs are great and highly underrated. So hearing you talk about your love of CDs on the pod has made me really happy, even if my friends will probably continue to make fun of me forever. Anyway, here's my actual question. What is your preferred way to listen to CDs? Currently, my only functional CD player is in my car. How much of a difference can you tell between streaming audio and CD or vinyl? I swear in my car I can tell the difference between CDs and streaming Spotify through the Bluetooth, but my friends think I'm crazy. Thanks. Smile emoji, Liz. Uh, Liz, amazing question. Uh, thank you for, uh, for writing in. Um, I just want to say that I hope that this podcast becomes ground zero for the CD revival. Uh, I'm going to use this platform to pontificate against the vinyl uh, you know, boom that we've had, which I think is totally overrated at this point, and is just like ridiculous, just like super overpriced, like charging like you know forty dollars for you know a reissue of like the Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack or whatever. I gotta
1: get that. I gotta get that Coke bottle variant. You know, like it's it's all it's all about getting the variants.
0: <laughs> but um, to answer your questions, uh, I mean I have a CD player in my office. I also have one in my living room, and I have one in my car. So I like listening to it in all those places. But the car is really my favorite place because it's the only place that I can listen to music really loud. You know, Unless I'm listening to headphones, of course. Um, and I do agree. I think CDs sound a lot better than streaming audio. I think uh, CDs are generally louder to me, they, and they sound deeper. Like, if you're playing them loud, they sound... Much fuller than streaming audio. Streaming audio also has that issue where if you are, say, driving in a less populous area, you might, like, lose your signal. Uh, The Bluetooth might not work properly. Uh, It just tends to be really annoying in that respect. Whereas CDs, they always keep the faith. They're not going to screw with you. You will always be able to listen to them wherever you're driving. Uh, So, yeah, I, I think the car... Listening to music in the car is like one of my favorite things to do in life. That's why I could never live in New York City or like any big city where I wouldn't want to have a car. Um, It just seems like a miserable experience not to be able to just blast music as loud as you can. And I have a feeling the same is true for you, Ian. I mean, you live in California. That's a great driving culture i love oh yeah like whenever i'm in california i've i've been able to like rent a car on occasion like when i've been there for work things mm-hmm. and i just love driving in in california and listening to music
1: yeah it's it i remember um one time this guy from new york came to uh los angeles and i was living there and the one thing that he asked for me to do was to drive him around in my car uh listening to celebration rock so he could <laughs> so he could hear what it sounds like in a car. Um, yeah for me like cds are the last time i listened to cds was um when i drove across the country to move to kentucky like i put a bunch of mixes on cds and turn it into a very re- ritualistic sort of thing and it was so satisfying because i had not owned a cd since 2006 i think ghostface kill his fish scale was the last one uh. um how cds did however come very much in handy i would say through like 2008 to 2012 ish, like I would still get promo CDs uh, from like PR companies. And I think there was like a Supreme Court case that said that uh, we could continue to sell them uh, back to like a used CD store. So that would always be a way to like pocket a few bucks. But once it went all digital, you know, that really uh, took down an important stream of income for me. But Um, I do miss CDs mostly for like the visual aspect. I do think the act, like just the way they look uh, leads me to maybe have a placebo effect where it sounds louder and crisper and maybe cleaner, but I just miss like kind of holding the CD. Um, Sometimes I would go into like amoeba back, you know, amoeba music or what have you and just like look at CDs of albums released in like past 2015, just to see what they would look like. Um, You know, like, like Celebration Rock, for example, like I would find it and it's like, I wonder what the back cover looks like because I just had no idea. And it was just such a profoundly weird experience to know that this medium of music was still being produced. Um, I, I, I'm curious though, like what albums like right now do you really want to hear on CD? For me, it's like a visual thing, like just especially like double double albums for that that is just something i associate with the cd era and so m83's hurry up Upward dreaming to me that seems like the definitive like quote unquote cd album of the 2010s i think also because uh, anthony gonzalez is such like a uh, such an immense smashing pumpkins fan uh, i i just think of it sitting on my cd shelf the same way like melancholy and the infinite sadness or the wall did um, I, I might like, I mean, I might just buy it on CD just to own it, just to like handle it. That might be worth however much I pay for it.
0: Yeah. I mean, generally like most of the CDs I buy are like older albums, sometimes albums that uh-huh. aren't even streaming. So that's another reason to buy it on CD because it's the only way to hear it sometimes. But in terms of like albums that have come out recently, like one album I bought on disc was the Sufjan Stevens record, The Ascension, just because I felt like it's such a long record. And I feel like when you buy an album, it's more of a commitment to, like, immerse yourself into it. It's like... Yeah. And and I'd say that that's generally true for me, like, with the albums that I've been buying. You know, like, I bought, like, the Waxahachie record. I bought, like, the Phoebe Bridgers record. Um, You know, these are all albums that I feel like, you know... I don't want this just to be something I stream for a week and then forget about. Like, I want it to actually kind of, I want to live with this album. I want to be able to put it in my car. I want to be able to take road trips with this record and and live with it. And I think that is, again, that's one of the many things I love about, I guess, just physical media in general is that when you can actually, like, hold something, I feel like it has, like, a greater sense of permanence. Whereas if it's just on a streaming platform... It just gets, you know, subsumed by every other piece of data that's on there. And I, I just feel like it's easier to lose track of things. I'll also say, too, and I'm sure Liz out there, if you're listening, you will appreciate this. One of my favorite things to do, if I'm going to take a long drive, is to do the CD draft. You know, like when you're looking at your shelf and you're like, <laughs> what are my like draft picks for Get this drive?
1: Vi- yeah, the visor on the, uh, on the rear, on the... Uh... On the on the whatever the right. thing you pull down, yeah, that, like, or the like, CD, lo- the Logic binder or
0: whatever. What am I going to listen to on this drive? And I yeah. and I love bringing the stack into the car, and you know, this is these are going to be like my companions on this drive, and you know, they're gonna it's going to soundtrack this drive, but it's also yeah, like they're riding shotgun with me, and I, I love yeah. that ritual that I, I would never want to give that up. Uh, so that's another great thing about CDs. Yeah. Uh, so uh, okay, so. Liz, thank you again for that great question. This next question, I feel like that first question was like a slow pitch down the middle for me. Yeah. (laughs) The second one is a slow pitch down the middle for Ian. Uh, And uh, this this question comes from Joe. Joe, thank you for writing in. He says, hey, Steve and Ian. First, thank you for the very entertaining podcast, which I look forward to every week. By the way, if you compliment us, it's a good way to get on the show. Like If you give us a compliment, there's a good chance we're going to read your your email on here, or if you like insult us in a very funny way, we'll probably, we'll probably read your question then too. Um, my question is tangentially related to the new Sinai vessel album, ground a swim, which is dropping this week, which I figure has a good chance of being brought up by Ian in the next show. Ah. (laughs) <laughs> which, I, I'm i not sure if you were going to bring it up, but like... I, I think I, I hinted
1: at it on the previous one, but... Okay,
0: well, you know, you didn't have to bring it up now because Joe just brought it up for us. Um, I note that Shame Plant, one of the singles released in, in advance of this album, sounds pretty reminiscent of Narrow Stairs-era Death Cab for Cutie, which leads me to the question, are or were Death Cab ever an emo band? And what is the relationship between their 2000s output in the 2010s emo revival. Now, I'm just going to say something here quick <laughs> because I figure Ian is going to answer this for about 20 minutes, so I'll just yeah. step out of the way. But Bring I'll, a I'll just say that as a as an emo sort of, uh, I'm a sympathist, but I'm certainly not a loyalist or I'm not as inside certainly as you are, Ian. My impression of Death Cab is that they are quintessentially emo for their era. Like if I were to like, if someone were to say, name a 2000s era emo band Death Cab would either be the first band I'd mention or the second. I don't know if they technically classify as emo but certainly I feel like culturally they signify something emo to me in in rock music, certainly of that era so yeah, that's all I'll contribute to this conversation ian i'll I'll leave it to you,
1: yeah so I, I, for what you're saying right there it reminds me of like what Moe said on The Simpsons the Homer it's like in regards to emo it's like i'm a well-wisher and that i don't wish you any specific harm um <laughs> but with this album i'm glad he brought it up because a it's a great record um i would highly recommend you know if we can fast forward to recommendation corner highly recommended but you know this band in particular brought up a larger point and something that we tend to discuss here on indie quite frequently um The front person for, is it Sinai or Sinai? I remember my Hebrew school pronounced it Sinai, but I've heard Sinai a couple times. So if I pronounce it differently, it's, you know, that's just how I was raised. But uh, (laughs) Caleb from the band, he posted on Twitter that uh, the world, and this is like a pretty humble guy. And he posted that like the world was seriously sleeping on the new record, Uh, which, you know, in a way feels true. This album, Ground to Swim. Uh, It's a self-release. The previous record, Broken Leg, in 2017, came out on Tiny Engines. Um, And I don't think it has gotten the same attention as that previous one, even though, ironically, it's probably more—it's something that might interest mainstream indie rock uh, listeners because he's talked about how it's influenced by Big Thief, whereas Broken Leg was more kind of traditional emo. Um, But— This brings the question to me, it's like, how do you even know if an album's being slept on in 2020? Usually in the past, you would say like, okay, you'd look at like how it's being reviewed, if it's being reviewed, if it's being covered, what do the gigs look like? But all the, like, there's what, maybe two music publications that regularly do reviews. Um, There's no touring happening. And so it seems as if like, Maybe all but fifteen albums, maybe from this past year, could honestly make a
0: claim to be slept on. Is it even fifteen? Uh, I feel like it yeah, would be less maybe than 10. ten. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, it might be ten. I, there's like a small number. I mean, especially if we're talking indie albums. Yeah, yeah there's like a small number of albums that were released earlier this year that I still see being referenced, and I think they're yeah. all albums that we could all name off the top of our head, like a, uh, you know, like Phoebe Bridgers' Punisher uh, yeah. would be one. I guess like. The Fiona Apple record would yeah, be another Box one. Yeah,
1: Perfume Genius, and like,
0: uh, that's really about it. Yeah, like what else? I mean, I, I, I have personal favorites, but yeah, just in terms yeah. of like records that you see referenced, you know, continually, I, I, there's not many.
1: Yeah, so I mean, yes, this album's being slept on, but like we were talking about at the beginning of the episode, I think music in general is being slept on. (laughs) Uh, Like, I, I just don't think people have like the bandwidth to like, like I don't remember. I don't even remember anyone putting out like their first half to like uh you know top albums or something like that. It's it's just like is a blur to me.
0: But well, and like I was I was talking about this the other day on Twitter. Like Green Day put out a record I think in yes. January that no and there was one a huge remem- controversy behind it right too. And, and no one remembers that that record was like. Shot out of a cannon into a black hole in the sky, yeah. <laughs> never to be heard from again. And that's Green Day, you know, like pretty big band. I mean, they're past their prime, obviously, but like, yeah, you know, they there there were billboards all over the country like advertising that record. And like Billy Joe Armstrong now is putting out a covers record, yeah. I guess, like this month, just to maybe. Just I'll, to re- I'll take your word for it. <laughs> just to remind people that he still is in a band, you know, like yeah. Uh, so, yeah, times are tough everywhere. But, yeah, like, Sinai Vessel, oh, they're, they're getting the IndieCast yeah, they're getting right slept
1: now. Yeah, they're getting slept on even in a question about them specifically. Like, let, getting back to them, though, that, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, IndieCast Caleb's Yeah, it, Caleb said, like, uh, Narrow Stairs was a influence on that particular song. But to me, that album sounds a little bit more like earlier Death Cab, um, you know, kind of pr- before they had gotten to... Um, a major label, but I would also say that it's more Pedro the Lion um, in there as well because uh, many of the songs kind of struggle with like a religious upbringing. It's a lot more spare, like sometimes bass is a lead instrument. uh If you kind of like Pedro, if like Winners Never Quit slash We Have the Facts and We're Voting Yes, if that appeals to you, I think this album's going to be up your alley, but. You know, as far as like Pedro the Lion and Death Cab specifically, like where they rest in emo, I think Pedro the Lion definitely, but Death Cab, um, I don't. When we made that, uh, also are the Vultures' best emo songs of all time. That list that also happened this year. Like I, I, I was I, Death I Cab on that list. I, Death Cab was absolutely on that list. The movie script ending made it, I believe, at number 34 in the 30s there I don't think there was ever any doubt that they were going to be on that list although there was some kind of debate as to what would because I think like you were saying there it's kind of impossible to conceive of the I guess the public's view of emo without Death Cab Um, it's like they are an essential band as far as formulating an idea of like what it means to be an emo person But as far as an emo band, if you look back, even at their most like quote unquote emo era, like the early years, um, they were kind of more of a Pacific Northwest indie band. They were on Barsuk. um, uh, The first album sounds a bit more like Early Built to Spill or even Low. Like Death Cab was pretty slowcore in the beginning. Um, And they didn't really have any roots in punk rock or I don't even think they really toured with too many emo bands. Like I did see the death and dismemberment tour they did uh, with the dismemberment plan. Another band who was like, is it emo or is it not? They didn't uh, make that list even though they were from DC and produced by Jay Robbins. Um, But as far as like how they've influenced the emo revival, I think in a way the quote emo revival was uh, in a way kind of going away from the public perception of it. Uh, Whether it be like the fuel by Ramen stuff or like Death Cab slash Bright Eyes. I mean, that stuff's coming back in a major way now because that's just the nature of cyclical trends. But you can see uh, their influence in some bands who I would put in that realm. Like, for example, Sinai Vessel. Oso Oso, I think, particularly Unahan Mixtape, had a lot of Death Cab in it. Um, Maybe Basking in the Glow to a lesser extent. Uh, Chris Walla, the uh, guitarist slash producer who was with the band up until I believe uh, he did a little bit on Kintsugi, um, which is easily Death Cab's worst album and like the one that kind of ushered in their like uh, their era where they're now kind of just like uh, the Black Keys in a way where they put out a new album and it gets on K-Rock just because it's them. Uh, Chris Walla did produce Near My God from Foxing and he's been on a couple other Uh, important records in that realm as well Um, so I would say like they're they're kind of in that like bright eyes realm where they're not exactly like emo if you think about it in terms of like the lineage of coming from emotional hardcore but also come on you can't keep that stuff that hard like if you play a movie script ending or the new year uh, at like a virtual emo night or whatever like Everyone's gonna, everyone's gonna love it. So.
0: Oh, I have a feeling that some people can police it that hard. I, I, I'm sure. Oh no, people, people do <laughs> police it that hard. No, uh, you.
1: But like, why? Look, I, I did a little bit of policing in my time. You know, especially when like Emo Night LA was popping off or whatever, and like, I regret every second of it. Yeah,
0: yeah. You know, uh, I think our stance on this show is defund the music police yeah let's defund the music police you don't need to be policing this stuff yeah, you're gonna you,
1: really hurt us in georgia no i'm just kidding you um, want
0: to yeah well you, you want to hear my opinion on death cat for cutie sure i do they're fine oh. that's it that's it that's all i have to say i mean they're fine i have yeah you know, I, I don't ha- i don't feel passionately about them either way there's some songs of theirs i like catalog overall leaves me a little cold but i mm. i'm not mad at it and it's fine and i appreciate their their place in history and I recognize that they're an important band, so. But Death Cab, they exist. <laughs> exactly, that's my stance. They're fine. Yes. They're fine. Um, let's move on to our next question. This comes from Twitter. This is a username in Everglow. Hmm. Thank you for your question. This came a few weeks ago, actually. We were we were going to use this question, and we had to bump it because we had so many good questions. But I still wanted to get it into the show somehow. So, here is in Everglow's question. This person asks. What's more impressive, a long career of merely good albums, a short career of two to three great albums, or a long career consisting of both great and good albums? Um, This is a great question. This is something I think about a lot. I think if you know anything about me, the writing I've done, my answer will probably be pretty obvious. I love a long career where there's peaks and there's valleys. Um, I like the idea that, say, Bob Dylan can make um Blonde on Blonde, and you can also make a make you know, Knocked Out Loaded, you know, and or you can make Christmas from the Heart, or you can make Time Out of Mind. Uh, I love that as a music fan because I think uh for one thing, great albums are always it's it's exciting to get it's it's exciting to get into a masterpiece, so you want those peaks. But I also I almost get as excited to explore albums that aren't very good or aren't considered to be very good and to try to find something interesting about it, especially if it's made by someone who is a genuinely great artist. I think that a bad album by a great artist is more interesting than a good album by a good artist. You know, give me a misfire by, like, a genius over, you know, a competently made album by a good craftsman. You know, I I, I like those huge misfires. I mean, I did publish a story this week Defending uh, Lou Reed and Metallica's Lulu, so I, you know, that is Exhibit A in my uh, stance there. I guess the other thing I would say too, you know, the short career of two to three great albums, um, you know, wouldn't the examples I think that pop out of of that, you know, the obvious ones being like you know Velvet Underground, Big Star, uh, Jimi Hendrix, Nirvana. A lot of times that's not by choice. You know, usually it's because someone died or because there was some, you know, personnel shakeup and, and they decided to break up. There's something undeniably impressive about just having a catalog of all like classics, like the way Jimi Hendrix does or the way I think Nirvana does. But at the same time, it doesn't seem intentional. So if we're going to say impressive, I don't know if it's impressive as much as just a. A benefit and a curse of fate maybe uh so i don't know and and like the the career of like all good albums i think that's cool too i think someone who can just be consistent and is good all the time although that can get a little boring too i mean i guess that's the curse of spoon for instance yeah i was about to
1: say what's the example but then again like i would say spoon's got masterpieces oh like yeah they are that's true they're like they make masterpieces and like pretty good albums and That to me is impressive. Like, I think it's tough to really identify any band who is like simply like good for like their entire like make ten straight good albums, but none of them are like great. None of them are bad. Like, nothing comes. Nothing even comes to mind. Like, who can be that consistent for that long?
0: You know, there's there's one band that uh, that came to mind with that. Which do you remember that band? uh, The Men. Uh, okay,
1: I would say yes, but I think some of their albums were, like, actual bad.
0: <laughs> See, I like all of their albums, but I never felt like they made, like, a classic album. I always felt like uh, all their albums were good, but they never went to the next level. And maybe, and, and I think you're right. I think if you don't take that next step to greatness, you you tend to just sort of fade. Even if you're just yeah, like, like I'm a solid band, but like we're not... We've never really kind of done anything ex- exceptional.
1: I, I was thinking of w- the band Woods, who is, like, oh. sort of in that same sort of uh, realm as the men. Like, I think the first, like, Leave Home and Open Your Heart are, like, fucking awesome. Like, maybe not classics, but then they kind of shifted more towards, like, a Neil Young sort of thing. So I could imagine uh, how you might, you know, be, be more into that sort of thing. But, like, Woods is an example of a band where I think of that, like, they've put out a lot of albums And I think, like, if you look at, like, all music, like, all of them got four stars. Like, that's impressive to me. Right. Like And, like, all their Metacritic scores are, like, 78. I think I actually, like, looked into that once. It's, like, I think they are, like, the most consistent band of, uh, uh, the most consistent longstanding band of, like, our times as far as indie rock goes.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. And...
1: Because they show and they show up to Pitchfork Music Festival like every two years to play the three o'clock spot. Like they are, it is like clockwork with Woods.
0: I mean, does Real Estate fall in that lane? I mean, I guess I feel like the the, the first two Real Estate records I like a lot, and I would be tempted to call them great. But I mean, they've
1: only put out like four or five albums. I think I think Days is kind of a modern classic. So they have like Um, six
0: albums now. I think what. (laughs) No. <laughs> Let me look this Show, up Shows that I know I think I mean Because they, they put out a record um, I think maybe earlier this year That was like Oh my Oh my god <laughs> That I thought was this, like Pretty strong it, it, Here, yeah, I'm th- looking this up I'm, I am All right. uh, I am wikipedia it uh, okay, I know they, they had one they have five seven, albums In 2017 Five albums okay. Five albums And uh, two EPs so um, I mean they're they're definitely getting into that zone, yeah, but I think Woods yeah. is a really good example i I love that record at Echo Lake. That's one of their earlier albums, ah, yeah, but I'd be loath to make a case for how that's decidedly different or better than their other records. I think it was just because the summer that that album came out, I hung out with my buddy and we drank beer and listened to that record on my back porch a lot <laughs> so we have I have good memories of it for that reason uh Fun times. it was the beer record uh, yeah. so but what do you think about the the question overall like what, what's most impressive to you out of those three
1: scenarios yeah like you were saying i think you have to look at the a band's intentions um it that to make two or three great like classic albums and then kind of stop that's usually not a artistic choice and it's extremely impressive when you can do that like for example um i think of a band like the hotel year now they put out like one album at it Never Goes Out, which is, you know, pretty good pop, uh, pop punk album. Then they put out Home Like No Place Is There, which is, by most people's estimations, the greatest emo album of the 2010s. And then, in my estimation, Goodness is the best indie rock album of uh, the 2010s. Now, and I don't think I'm ever going to hear another record from them as a band. Like, I think Christians out there are just going to play poker for the rest of their time. Um and i think they've just basically said uh we haven't really made music that interests us lately like and i don't um begrudge them for not doing that i think if they ever do come back to do a 10 year anniversary of from home for home like no place is there it'll have a lot more um juice to it than if they just put out a couple records that you know didn't quite hit those marks because they just felt like they needed to um but when I was a CD buyer, now if we're going to trace back to that first question, easily I would have say like I like the the peaks and valleys. Like I, it was such a formative experience to go to Disco Round, which was the UCD store, and like when you would see like Prince or the Cure or Springsteen, like one of their lesser known albums, and you would pay six dollars for the privilege of like trying to talk yourself into like the top or around the world in a day. Um, because like you were saying, it's like, it's an investment. It's something that's going to sit on like quite literally the biggest piece of furniture that I have at the time. And also I have to point out that a reason I can never really go back to the CD era is that when you move across the country, you got to think about how much it costs to ship literally thousands of compact disc and also in California we don't have as much space to live in right so you you know either he need to have that or like no bookcase but I think if you're gonna talk about like whether it's more impressive to have like great albums and like terrible albums I think they need to be kind of interspersed within each other for example like you know like you mentioned Bob Dylan like he went through a period in the 80s or Neil Young when he was going through his like weird phase where they eventually come back and you can kind of explore like what they were doing in between those classics. Like for example, Smashing Pumpkins is a band that has made, in my estimation, classic albums and really terrible albums. But they're not as much fun to explore because the quality drops off so drastically after 2000. Uh, There's just, there's, it's not much fun when you have a band that like does their classics early on and this continues to go on. Right. Just making like not very good albums. Now, granted, you could be a contrarian and say, no, they're they're this their new stuff is just as good as their old stuff. But um I think uh, it's hard for me to like think about band what it's like to experience bands that put out those peaks and valleys as they're happening. I think they're more fun to visit in retrospect, especially back when I guess I had the ability to go through quote-unquote a phase of an artist like being in college having a springsteen phase and doing the deep dive there it's like it's not as much fun to do a deep dive in the streaming era because there's really nothing at stake you can listen to like 10 minutes of uh you know like uh like wild mood swings by the cure and decide yeah not not doing it but yeah but I, but i
0: think i think there's some catalogs though you can do that with where i mean you know, just to name a band that I often name check on this show, The Strokes. I, I, I do oh. like going back and because uh, I do feel like they, they have a catalog that's pretty up and down. And I do feel like, you know, they have had late period records that I would count as a comeback. I think the same with The Killers, for instance. I think yeah. they have like very spotty albums and they also have great albums. And it's kind of fun to explore the less, uh, you know, good albums and how they got back uh, to making better records. You know, I was thinking about going back to that idea of like artists that make two or three classics and then disappear and how generally it doesn't seem like it was intentional. I feel like I was trying to think of someone who like walked away after making classics. The only example I can think of is Neutral yeah. Milk Hotel. I think Absolutely. Like Mangum mm-hmm. has to be the only, I mean, maybe there's someone else, but like, because you know, they put out an EP in 2011. It was the first thing they put out since, in the airplane over the sea, but that was just old songs. So it wasn't like oh, he wrote yeah. anything new for that. Um, that's the only example I could think of of someone who like, yeah, made two very well loved records and then mm. just deliberately walked away. I mean,
1: you can think of like talk, talk. I know Mark Hollis made like a solo record and just like never really came back, but I don't think they're quite, you know, at the level where like people think of them as like neutral milk hotel. Like, I mean, they walked away for real. They, they, Neutral Milk hotel, you could see them play uh, you know festivals and so forth. and you know Jeff's voice definitely down a notch or two. You could hear it like maybe like a step. But yeah, I think in I, I don't think it's gonna quite hit us and uh, you know for a couple more years, like whether there's any artists like that doing it contemporary uh, contemporarily. like you know, my Bloody Valentine, they came back. And moreover, like they spent a lot of years promising a new record. Um, that never was the case with Neutral Milk Hotel.
0: He's just done like reunion tours and, yeah. you know, or but that, yeah, I haven't really heard any talk about him making a new record. I I'm I curious. wouldn't want to hear it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, look, uh, does Neutral Milk Hotel hold up for you? Like those records, oh, yeah, it doesn't hold up as well for me at you this see? point. Like, uh, I appreciate I, it, but I don't know. Like Like late 90s indie rock, there's a lot of other albums I'd rather listen to. Than uh, in the airplane over the sea, and I am I mean, definitely in the minority on that. It just do I feel as passionate about that album as I did in like you know
1: 2002 or 19? Like I don't feel about passionate about like just about anything that was happening at that time. I think it's become like an easy album to kind of joke about because of like the cult surrounding it. Another album that like when we think about like peaks valleys, I mean Weezer comes up as well. Like and uh, that's oh, yeah. another band where it's kind of fun to. Now, granted, I I think that they're a band who hasn't released anything like that's topped, hey, pretty good since Pinkerton, which is you know another album like uh, in the airplane over the sea that gets kind of mocked online for, you know, I guess what some might consider it's regressive sort of uh,
0: gender relations. I still love but, that record. See, I'll uh, defend that record the, rules. I'll defend the Weezer records. you know, Weezer I think the White Album, I remember thinking that was, like, pretty good. I mean, that uh, Everything Will Be Right in the End, I thought was pretty good. Yeah, that good. was pretty good, and I never listened to it
1: again. Well, like, yeah. That is what, that's what Weezer albums provide for me. It's like, hey, this is pretty good. Like, uh, this this is pretty good. And then to never listen to it again, and that's how, that's how they keep going. Now, one of these days, maybe, I don't know, 10 years from now, there's going to be uh, someone who comes along and, like, just stumps for – like mid-period Weezer albums, like Ratitude, or that happens now.
0: Uh, I see really? that now. Oh yeah, I I well we, could, we can. you be, really make a claim for
1: yourself as like a critical we, like. We um, can get
0: Andrew Untenberger on here from Billboard. <laughs> he'll he'll definitely stand up for those records. I feel like I think he yes, was he the will. one that defended the the Teal album, which was huh. the, all the covers like the the Africa oh, God. album.
1: That and, wasn't this year, was it?
0: No, that was that was okay. a couple years ago. I mean, really? I think it was 18 or 19. It wasn't, I mean, Africa's that was a hit. I think that was 19. Maybe. That was 2009. The album came out in
1: 2019, but maybe okay. Africa came out in 2000. like I just please God don't let
0: me find out that the teal album happened this year too. I think uh I think like <laughs> Craig Jenkins over at New York Magazine gave that a positive review too. So I, I mean, Yeah. That has some that has some defenders. I mean, The thing with Weezer for me too is that like listening to them as like a middle-aged man is like just seems kind of depressing to me. Like I (laughs) I get a little depressed if I find myself listening to Weezer. I'm like, oh, I'm this guy. I'm listening to – I'm a 43-year-old man listening to Weezer. I don't know how I feel about this. How did I get to this point in my life? uh you know because it's an
1: embarrassment that you feel like that you don't feel when you're listening to like actual teen pop that's like (laughs) happening in 2020 it's like somehow this feels like more regressive than uh listening to music that is specifically designed for teens in uh, like you know a a 43 year old probably should be listening to weezer but also
0: (laughs) like they probably shouldn't well there's something specific about them because like there's other '90s bands I'm I'm fine revisiting. I don't feel that, but there's something specific about Weezer that um, I don't know. There, it's a little. Uh, I weird. think I, I think I I think I do know. I it's mean, a you listen to Pinkerton. Yeah,
1: like Pinkerton has some things that like may hit a lot harder when you know you're this like um, uh, repressed 16 year old that um, it's like wow, like. That, that that hit at a certain time and now it's like, yeah, I'm I'm beyond that. Like I don't feel that way if I were to revisit, say, even like a bush or a sponge album or something that I should be embarrassed to listen to. It's the fact that they hit on a very teenage adolescent or adolescent slash teenage level. And in some ways you feel like you were kind of sucker not suckered, but it just kinda of hit you at a time when you were vulnerable enough to hear it and See, uh, you know, hopefully, it's not so like, much. hopefully you don't feel that same way. I
0: don't know. It's not so much that for me as, like, just the way that Weezer has aged. They just strike me. They just remind me of, like, the guy who's still going back to his high school 20 years later and, like, you know, talking about, like, the latest trends. Because he wants people to think that he's still cool and young. Mm. And uh, there's something kind of, like, off-putting about that. I think that's just been, like, Rivers Cuomo's thing. Like, he's, like, the... Yeah, he's the Steve Buscemi uh <laughs> gif, you know. Like I, I don't know. I think I think
1: with the holding skateboard. Like, I, I think there's something so genuine about like Rivers Cuomo's approach to music that I can't see it uh, I I can't hate it. Like I think he's just really just kind of a weird guy. I don't think there's anything um uh, manipulative or like uh cynical about what he does. So that 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 to me is like why no matter like how bad they get i can't possibly hate weezer
0: yeah i don't hate them i will always be fascinated by them and yeah. and this conversation that we're having on this podcast it it confirms a theory i've always had that if you get two guys who are between the ages of like 38 and like 45 in a room they will end up talking about weezer within like 15 <laughs> minutes it's just the law you know like if you were born like you know late 70s early 80s uh, you will be end up talking about Weezer, which is what we ended up doing on this show. And like, we have some more questions to answer, but we're I think we're running out of time here, so we'll have to table our two remaining questions for another episode. We got sidetracked by Weezer, man. Yes,
1: <laughs> it, it happened. All the, yeah, it, it, it the oldest trick in the book. You know, no matter what it is, it just ends up coming about Weezer. You know, maybe that when this evolves into like Weezercast in 2021. Like, we'll look back on this episode as the real tipping point for it all.
0: (laughs) All right, we've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner. This is where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first?
1: Okay, so I I, I was only kind of joking when you know you made when we made the joke earlier at the episode about like Joe Biden making punk rock great again. Um, on the last Friday, November sixth, there were two hardcore albums, hardcore screamo, whatever you want to call it, that I think really kind of, in some ways, they were so perfectly suited for the moment because there's something celebratory about listening to screamo. It's like a big release, but also it's very angry. So at the, in the same way, like where it's like, I think Biden won, but like, we're not quite sure yet. It allowed us to exist in this kind of state where we're just like completely anxious, but kind of on the verge of like letting out this great release. And so, uh, two records came out that day. Uh, the first of which I've talked about a lot here, record setters, I owe you nothing. Um, just to give a little bit about that because I've talked about it so much. Um, I would call this probably the best, uh, like hardcore album of maybe the past couple of years. As far as like actual like hardcore screamo, uh, this just puts together basically everything that you could possibly want from the genre. Um, I think they put together a um, we like uh, like a playlist for Top Shelf Records, their label recently, and it had you know, like Ostraka and like these other like hardcore screamo bands that kind of flew on the radar, but also like Boys Life and Oso Oso. So it has both that very abrasive, uh, like 12 people in a basement screamo thing going on, but also like real deal melodies, like sort of like tight, like a much angrier title fight. Um, I think that's a record that's being slept on just by nature of the fact that people don't Tend to gravitate towards
0: aggressive music, but I feel like I've seen a lot you, of people talking about that. But maybe that's really? just my, maybe that's just my Twitter feed. Maybe yeah, you know. I think that is because <laughs> I mean Stereo Gum. I think called them a band to watch. I mean that was the story. Uh, you yeah, wrote, I, think. I, I wrote that. Yeah, but um, yeah. Once again, it's hard to tell if something's
1: being like slept on. I think compared to other hardcore bands, maybe they're like seen as like oh my god, like they really made it. They got a Stereo Gum profile. But to me, it's like that's something that to, is like a modern standard. But the second one that came out, and I think one that's gotten even more attention than Records Setter, and you know, I think perhaps deservedly so, is a band called Soul Glow. Um, they're from Philadelphia. They've been around for, I would say, the greater part of the past half decade. They're more of a, I guess, they're kind of like a more purist screamo band in a way, or more of a purist hardcore band. Very political. They are, um, they're a black uh, hardcore band from Philadelphia who, for the most part, writes a lot about um, what they feel is often like tokenization in their scene or like the limits of white allyship um, and just like very abrasively political and somewhat of a in a way like I'd say like more that has in common with like the coup than public enemy um, but they put out an EP on Jeremy Boehm the uh, the lead singer of Touche Amore's label called um, uh, Songs to Yeet at the Sun um, and <laughs> It's a five-song EP, 12 minutes, and it just—it it is like the perfect thing to listen to uh, on the day where people were wondering whether or not Joe Biden was going to be elected because everything that they talk about on this record, which kind of goes from like suicidal tendency style thrash, and there's also like a Death Grip style rap song in the middle as well. It talks about like what it's like to be so broke off student loans. You're eating like hot sauce off your hand or being like... Um, subject to extortionist pricing on, um, you know, medication or SSRIs or defund the police or anything like that. It just talks about like all these problems that have come up recently, but like have are going to continue most likely like people are still going to be broke. Uh, They're still going to be harassed by the police. Their last album uh, had a picture of them getting pulled over in Missouri and they had a GoFundMe that raised, uh, I think, $15,000 for bail. Um, but yeah, but the political aspect of Soul Glow, um, just in in terms of like what's happening right now, they just speak to all the things that people were fighting for, um, in the past election. Like, you know, Black Lives Matter, defund the police, um, Medicare for all. And you get a sense of like, yes, this anger is so righteous. And also none of this is probably going to be solved. And also it's 12 minutes and it kicks ass. So I... It costs you nothing to check this out. So, Soul Glow, Songs C8, the Sun. I think this one, um, we're. Go- I think people are going to look back on this one as another like pretty landmark release in terms of hardcore.
0: Very cool. Looking forward to checking that out. My recommendation this week is a Nebraska rocker named David Nance, and I've been a fan of this guy for. Uh, a few years now. Uh, he has an album that comes out today. It's called Staunch Honey. Um, it's one of my favorite albums of like late 2020. I've been listening to this record a lot the past few weeks. You know, and on this show, you'll hear me talking about my love of Chugal. Huge Chugle. huge Chugal fan. I love Chugal rock. David Nance is one of the finest practitioners of Chugal rock that we have right now. Uh, <laughs> this Staunch Honey record is so good. I came into, like, uh, I first got into him a few years ago when he put out a record called Pieced and Slightly Pulverized, which is an excellent record. That record is actually credited to uh, David Nance's group, and it is more of like a loud rock and roll record. Uh, pretty long songs, like lots of guitar solos, like if you like that sort of like mid-70s crazy horse sound. That record is definitely in that lane. Uh, the new record is a little quieter, a little folkier, but like not like a wimpy, wispy type of folk. It's very robust, uh, really cool like rhythm parts. Um, and again, it has that chugel to it. It has the chugel rhythm, which I cannot get enough of. And uh, I would also recommend that he put out a live record on Bandcamp on Bandcamp Friday last week. It's called September 20th, uh, 2020, and he played a Backyard concert just for some friends. And he plays a lot of the songs that are on Staunch Honey on that record. So I'd recommend that you listen to Staunch Honey, dig into that record, and then also check out that live record. It's just those songs presented in a more raw form. You can also maybe kick David a couple dollars. I think he could probably <laughs> use it. Um the other great thing about him too, like once you're on his Bandcamp page, one of the things I really loved about Nance as I got into him and I ended up interviewing him a few years ago is that he's also put up several covers albums, like where he covers an album in its entirety. Like he covered the Rolling Stones' Goat's Head Soup. He covered Lou Reed's Berlin, uh, Beatles for Sale. But they're they're not straightforward covers. They're like pretty dramatic reimaginings to the point where if you – didn't know that they were covers, it would be hard to tell sometimes that he was actually drawing on that source material. But as someone like me, who is interested in that classic rock lineage and also how artists today take those source materials and they twist them and they take them in different directions, I think David Nance is one of the really more interesting people working in that realm. And I think he's done some really great things. So, again, his new album is called Staunch Honey. Definitely go check that out. I think you'll really enjoy it. Um, I think we're out of recommendations and we're also out of time yeah. in this episode. So thank you again for listening uh, to this episode of IndyCast. Uh, by the way, if you like our show, please give us a rating on iTunes or like wherever you get your podcasts. These things help the show, it gives us a little bit better exposure. There's like algorithms that determine which shows get promoted on different platforms and shows that have a lot of reviews and a lot of ratings tend to do better in the algorithm so if you like our show give us a rating if you don't like our show scream into your pillow for a minute or so (laughs) you'll feel better after this episode uh but yeah thank you for listening uh, to this episode of IndieCast We, we will be back with more reviews and news and hashing of trends next week peace and if you're looking for more music recommendations sign up for the indie mixtape newsletter you can go to uprocks.com backslash indie and i recommend five albums per week and we'll send it directly to your email box (laughs)